Genesis chapter 40, verses 1 through 8. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they, they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon, everybody. I hope you're all doing well. I hope you're enjoying the spring weather we're having as well. Why don't, we, uh, why don't we just pray one more time before we start? Lord, at this time, we want to look in your word. And we are so expectant. We're so ready because we are all people that have been thirsting and hungering for your word. And so, Lord, won't you fill us now? Speak to us. Even though my lips may be um, imperfect, pray, God, that you would cleanse it so that it may speak boldly and proclaim the truth that this world needs. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Last week we talked about Joseph and Potiphar's wife. It ended by Joseph going to jail. There was an epilogue in that chapter. And that epilogue is even though he went to the king's prison, even though he went to jail, the Lord's favor was still upon him. So he was doing anything that he touched. Seems like he had Midas's hand. Anything that he touched, it succeeded. It bore fruit. People saw it and people were like, there's something special about this man. Uh, and especially Potiphar's wife knew that as well. But he went to the jail. And so this is the epilogue, and this is how we go into chapter 40. When you go to jail back in that time, it, was, it wasn't like the jail we have now. So many people might, you may have read this. In fact, I trust that. All of you, or most of you, have read this and you're familiar with the story, but I will go over it a little with you now. And that many people think that when you're in jail, you're behind bars, um, there's cells, and then people come by and shove like a, a tray of food every once in a while, then you eat it. Uh, jails back then weren't like that. Jails back then were like a dome, and it was like a circle. Uh, the reason why is 
the jail keeper would have, let's say this was a huge dome, there would be a little ledge that the jail keeper can stand on and there would be no corners in the jail. So you could see everything. There's nothing hidden. So you had zero privacy in these jails. Uh, and so this is where Joseph was. And even when the jailkeeper would see Joseph, he would see that this guy, there's something about him. He is different. He is special. So even in jail, he put him on top and in charge of everything else. So we start out this chapter with this scenario. And sometime, we don't know exactly how much time, but sometime after this, the king or Pharaoh puts his cupbearer and baker in jail. Who are the cupbearer and baker? These were people that were very close to the king. Remember last week I said this was the king's jail. So not anybody had access to it. Who had access? The king or Pharaoh had access to this jail. And so these two men committed some kind of crime, or maybe they did, or they were in suspicion of committing a crime, so they were put in this jail. And <clears throat> these two people, they're very close. Many times you might try to poison the king. And so how would you poison him? Maybe put something in his drink. So the cupbearer would be the taster of all foods before even got to the lips of the king. Um, and some TV shows kind of kind of mimic that or try to portray it like there's this really fat guy next to the king just eating everything, taking one bite of everything, and it's like, oh, it's good, you can eat it. And the king's like, I don't want to eat this anymore. But um, that's, that probably wasn't the way it was done. It was probably done very discreetly, very uh, tastefully, so that the pharaoh didn't lose appetite. But he would taste everything just in case someone had poisoned it. But what this means, or what this meant, was that he had very close relationships, or he was in very close proximity with Pharaoh. And the same with a baker. So two people that are very close to the king of Egypt goes to jail. He was, it says here he was angry with them and put them in the custody in the house of the captain of the guard. The captain of the guard can also be translated as Potiphar, and so these are very high officials in Egypt. It probably wasn't the same Potiphar. Potiphar was a title, and so these are very high officials. And so this captain of the guard, uh, he put him under their care, and this is exactly where Joseph was. And he appointed Joseph to attend them, to serve them, and he trusted them with the closest confidants of the king. That's how much they trusted Joseph. Um, and then in verse 5, it goes, they had a dream. The cupbearer and the baker had a dream, uh, each his own dream. And the narrator goes, each with its own interpretation. I don't know if you've ever had a dream, but sometimes... You have a dream and you wake up. And some people call me and tell me I've had this dream. Uh, and then I would recommend, immediately recommend, uh, tell me every detail you can. And number two is write it down. If you have a dream journal, that'd be great. Just do it. And so that's what I do. But they had this dream, each one with its own interpretation. 
And this is what the narrator says. And then Joseph came to them in the morning, and they saw that they were troubled. Uh, troubled literally means, it, it's a great translation because you can't literally translate this and make sense, but it means like turbulent. It means there was a storm brewing in the face. And there was something in the face, and it's like it's brewing. In other places where they use the same Hebrew word, and like in Second Chronicles, it's when Uzziah was angry. Or in Proverbs 19, uh, 3, when it says, A man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. That rage is the same word used here. In uh, Daniel chapter 1, when they wanted to fast, and the chief that was supposed to take care of Daniel's servants would say, I can't do this. What if your face looks worse than the others? That word is the same word here. So when Joseph came and he saw these guys, their faces, he knew that something was up. There's something in their face. It's like, oh, there's, some, there's a storm raging. And sometimes I will go to some of you and say, there's something up with your face. And I don't mean that as a bad thing. I don't, I don't mean like, oh my goodness, there's a booger and you didn't take it off, that kind of thing. I mean that there's something brewing and it's showing on your face. And this is exactly what happened here. Um, so he asked them, why are your faces so downcast? And they said to them, and this is what our deacon Hannah read up to, uh, we have had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. <clears throat> when I was a friend, uh, when I was a kid, I had friends who had dreams, and I was, I think, maybe one of the f one or two, one of the two Christians, or maybe the only Christian among my group of friends growing up. I grew up in Elmhurst, Queens, as I've said many times, and uh, we had a very diverse kind of group of friends that I grew up with. And they would have these dreams sometimes. And sometimes it, it was weird to me. It's not like I went around and said, you know, I'm a dream interpreter, guys. I'm, I'm only in seventh grade, but come to me. I didn't say stuff like that either. But when they would have these troubling dreams, they would just come and tell me. And it's like, what do you think it means? It's like, what do you mean, what do I think it means? <laughs> but I remember even as a kid reading this portion, and I would mimic what Joseph said to my friends. And I said, interpretations belong to God. And let me see if I can tell you what it means. Um, dreams have been a very powerful part of my upbringing in my life, too. When I was in second grade, <laughs> this is like, oh, back, way back a few years ago. And when I was in second grade, um, I had this reoccurring nightmare. And I usually don't have nightmares. But I had this reoccurring nightmare. I would wake up in a cold sweat, gasping for air, and it would be the exact same dream over and over again. And I remember my teacher said, hey, everybody, you know what? We're going to write an essay. This is in second grade. I, we're going to write an essay about your dream. Just write an essay. So I wrote my reoccurring nightmare. I wrote about how, you know, I would go up in an elevator and spikes would come out and slowly close and I'd barely escape. All my friends are just oblivious to what's going on, but the world's going to end, that kind of thing. And then I, would, I knew I had to like cross this river of lava, and I thought I finally made it. I'm skipping a lot of the parts. I still remember it, and there's this old man there. I'm like, I made it. 
And then he puts his finger in the lava, and he sucks up the lava and shoots it at me, and I'm dead. So I just wake up dead. And I was like, that was horrible. Um, in the second grade, so I had a very vivid and wild imagination, I suppose. And some of my other pastor friends told me that's why there's something wrong with me in the head. Eh, but... Well, I had this, I wrote this essay and she loved it. I guess she was also a little sick in the head. I don't know. But she loved it. She's like, this is like the best essay I've read. And I was like, this is my nightmare. This is what keeps me up. And I don't want to sleep because of this sometimes. But sometimes when we have a dream, we can't uh, be at peace. There's something, we just know. You know, there's something wrong with this dream. And you just sit there for a while and it's like, there's something wrong with this. That's, that's, that's human. That's who we are. And that's exactly what the baker and the cupbearer was going through. They had this dream, and they knew something was up. Something's wrong. And instead of letting it go, it showed on their faces. But thankfully, they weren't just alone. But Joseph was with them, and Joseph went to them. And because he cared for them... He didn't just act like a caretaker. He cared for them. That's why he was so special. And he goes to them and says, do not interpretations belong to God? Now, this is also special because they don't believe in Yahweh. They don't believe in the God that Joseph believes. In fact, they don't know him. But they knew that there was a God, probably, so he talked to them in their language. Every time you see the word Yahweh here in the Bible, they translate, translate that to the Lord. But when Joseph talks to them, he says not Yahweh, but he says Elohim, which is a generic term for God. So he says it in a way that they would understand. I was like, man, Joseph is the man. He not only cares for them, but he knows how to communicate with them. So he gets to them on their level. You know, it's like saying, I want to be an evangelist. And then you go to someone who has no idea what church is, and all you do is speak Christianese. And they're like, what? What are you talking about? You're not a good evangelist. But you want to go there and speak to them in a language that they understand. And this is exactly what Joseph does. He's like, do not interpretations belong to God? And you might say, well, how do you know they even believe in God? Well, they did because they understood it. Um, most people do believe in God, even here in the States. We are led to believe. For some reason, this is fascinating to me. As we grow up and as we're educated here, we're led to believe that most people don't believe in God or they're offended at the thought and the, and the and, you know, just hearing of the word God. But this is untrue. Even last year in June 2016, the Gallup poll was taken, 89% of Americans believe in God. Nine out of ten people believe in God. And other people are just not sure, or they don't, but nine out of ten people do. Uh, so he was able to talk to them. And we, as a people, I think this really, really should resonate with us. Because we're so afraid. We think we're the minority. You know, we think, oh, woe is me. If I even mention God, that's a terrible thing. But this is untrue. Even statistically speaking, it's untrue. And so they tell him the dream. Um, and so the first, uh, we have the cupbearer come and tells him the dream. 
And he says, in my dream, there, were, there was a vine before me. In the vine, there were three branches. It budded, blossoms shot forth. Clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes, pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph gave them the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as you did before. As you, now you're going to be cupbearer. And then he goes, please remember me. I wasn't, he, I mean, you guys are here maybe because you did something bad, but I didn't do anything bad. I don't, I don't belong here. And, he, you know, this is amazing. So even then, in jail, Joseph has faith that somehow he can get out. There's a hope in Joseph. And so he tells him this, and the chief baker is listening. And the baker listens, and he, and he goes, oh, he got a good response Remember, both people had dreams, and they're like, oh, this is bad. Something's wrong. And so he got a good response. So the baker's like, oh, I'm going to tell you my dream. I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and there were all sorts of big food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of, out of uh, my head. And then Joseph goes, oh, uh, the three baskets are three days. And Pharaoh, he will also lift up your head. Out of your body. <laughs> it's like, whoa, that's, that's, that's rough. And he goes, and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. So there is this play on words here. The lifter of the head. Uh, lifter of the head. If we lift up the head, it could be restore you to your rightful position. Lift you, lifter of my head, off your body, and you're going to die. And th this is exactly what it says. He says the exact same words, but they mean totally totally opposite things. And, and in uh, verse 20 and on, it says, on Pharaoh's birthday, which was the third day, he actually did those things that Joseph said. Um, this goes to show that, number one, what Joseph said was that God is the interpreter of dreams, but what he really meant is God is sovereign. God is sovereign over all things. He knows what he is doing, and he is in control of all that is going on. So he, um, he starts off with that. So what we need to also realize is that from this, you know, what does this even mean for us? Is that dream interpretations, while being important, what we need to realize is God is sovereign. God is the ultimate and sovereign Judge, nothing is out of his hands or control. No dream, no nothing. And so everything is sovereign. To God, I mean, everything is under God's sovereignty. Um, and these interpretations are pretty incredible if you think about it. If someone came to you and said, oh, I just had this dream of this vine and branches, and they were like three, and then they took up grapes and it was like, you might answer, maybe you were thirsty, you need a drink, dehydrated, right? That kind of thing. But Joseph gave them the exact, correct, and almost perfect uh, interpretation. What does that mean for us, though? And I've been really thinking about that. You know, it doesn't tell you what they did. The Bible doesn't tell you what the baker and the cupbearer did to deserve this. And to me, that is, that's, that kind of sparks my curiosity. 
I want to know what they did. How come they don't tell you? And it could be one of many reasons. One reason could be it doesn't matter to the nar narrative, so you don't need to know. It's something that you'll ask in heaven. You'll go up to Joseph and be like, what did they actually do? And Joseph will be like, oh, you know, he pooed wrong or something like that. I don't, you don't know, right? But you'll, you'll find out in heaven. Um, or number two, it's actually in there. And you just haven't seen it yet. Uh, so I always trust it could be one of those two, at least. So and I'll do my best to search. And it might not be the complete answer, but it could be a part of the answer. There are key differences in the dreams that we need to understand. And one of the key differences that we can see is, well, when the baker had his baked goods, and mind you, back in the day, bake, baking goods was an incredible, incredible delicacy. In fact, they had hieroglyphics for the kinds of breads and cakes. They really liked bread, which means, man, I'm, I must be Egyptian at heart because I love bread. So I love bread too. I love all kinds of bread. And even just looking at hieroglyphic texts, there are 38 kinds of cakes and 57 different kinds of bread. So when the Bible talks about all kinds of breads and cakes that were on his head on the baskets, it must have been just a table of goodies, just good stuff, yum, right? But they were in three different baskets, and the birds came and started eating them. And you have to start thinking, why didn't he chase them away? Why do you just let the birds eat the bread off your basket? Because that bread isn't for you. Who's the bread meant for? The bread was meant for the king. But he just, he was like, oh my goodness, the birds are just eating it from the basket. And that's how the dream goes. Secondly, is a difference between three different baskets and the three different branches. Uh, in this dream, in the cupbearer's dream, it says there was a vine. Now as Christians who know the Bible, we should know who the vine is, but there's this vine, and out of the vine, there are three branches. There is this sign and feeling that they are all connected to one big thing. But out of the three branches, out of the vine comes three branches, out of the branches come fruit. You take the fruit, you squeeze it, and then from that, you give that to the king. Um, this is also important to know because... We see that the vine connects the branches, and there's unity in this first dream. And in the second dream, there's this unity. If you look at, continue to look at the Bible in Proverbs, it talks about six things that the Lord hates and seven things that are detestable to him, right? That kind of thing. The seventh thing is a person that stirs up um, disunity, someone that really shakes things up. So it's like um, if we had this group one person will go to the other person and say, like, did you hear? Did you hear about Pastor Eugene? Uh, he does something really disgusting. And then it could be true or false, it doesn't matter, but you just like talking, and then you start splitting up the group. And that's what God really hates. That was the seventh thing that he hated. And so there's something about unity we need to keep in mind. And there's something about three that's so important in the Bible, which I wanna get to today. Uh, Three is all over the place, it's weird, right? Three is all over the place. We as Christians believe in the Trinity too, so three is all over the place. Uh, but there was one three 
the cupbearer's dream where it was connected to the vine. That means it was unified. And there was one three that was completely separate, three separate baskets on the head. And so when we think about it that way, one was connected and one wasn't. And I think that's very important for us to gain wisdom out of this. We are also a person of three. Let me explain. We have a physical body. We have an emotional body. And we have a spiritual body. We are a body of three. And if one of those parts are in pain or sick, then all of us suffer. Um, when Adam sinned, the death that occurred was in the spirit. And so once the spirit became dead, the mind and body started suffering and eventually they would decay. And this idea of Trinity is not new. It's been out there. It's, it's old people even back in the olden days would see there's something about three that's important that we need to get. I don't think it's any coincidence that three was three days here to point out wisdom to us. Um, so if I have an emotional state that is um, not healthy, it's not good, it affects actually my body and it affects my spirit. If I have a body that's not healthy and not good, it affects my emotional state I can't, and my spirit. And so... All these things are interrelated and connected. I'm going to move on to another um, kind of example. In the family, there's three. What's the family? That's three. The husband, the wife, and God, not the children. People think that children are the grapes. That's what you squeeze, right? So children are the fruit of the husband and wife. They're not, okay. Anyway, the God set up the family so it's a husband, wife, and God, when you're missing one, the family breaks apart. Uh, children are the fruit of the union. Yeah, we also, now psychologists are also learning, even secular people are learning that children are healthy when they see parents that love each other, but not only just love each other, but they are growing in love for one another. Children aren't healthy when you just pour out on the children. Those children don't grow up healthy. In fact, they grow up very unhealthy, uh, both physically, psychologically, mentally, whatever it is. But then we also see that in the church, there's three. Uh, we have even three groups here. What are those groups? We basically have a college group, we have a single group, and then we have a married group. It's interesting to me when people from either group or one of these three groups comes to me and says, Pastor Eugene, I see and I appreciate what you're trying to do, especially when we have gatherings, you know. Hey, guys, let's have a luncheon together. And they will come up to me and say, you know, as a person if part of this group, I really have zero desire to engage with any other part of the group. What they're really saying is, I just want to be a part of this basket, put me on the head, but I don't want to do anything with the other two baskets, what I'm saying then, in my response, is that makes us weak. That makes us susceptible to the enemy's attacks. We are not strong that way. We need to be united. And if we want to be three branches, who should we be connected to? And then Jesus Christ is the one that comes down and says, I am the vine. 
He is the main vine, and we connect to him. That means through his connection, we are all connected, whether you're in college, whether you're single or unmarried, or whether you're married. We should all have a love for one another and be united. Um, Finally, I want to talk about the Trinity of God. The picture that we are given is that Father is one person, the Son is another person, and the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity of God. They are so united, they are so perfectly united that we see them as one, and yet they are three, and yet they are one. And this is the mystery, but also the truth of the Trinity. Um, if you ever take new members, I will tell this story, so you'll hear it again. And if you took it, you've heard this story. And I was meeting with a scientist, and the scientist said, the day I realized that there had to be a God was when I discovered the atom. This is an old scientist, so um, the neutron was discovered in 1937, I believe. And so he said, once he realized there were three parts to that atom, he just said, there has to be a God. And I was like, yeah, okay, you need to explain. I, I totally have no idea what you're talking about. And so he explained. He said before 1937, they believed that there were only two parts to the atom, the proton, proton and the electron. But when they measured and weighed the atom, the atomic mass didn't equate to the proton electrons. They just didn't understand. And so when they actually weighed it, it didn't measure up to the protons, electrons, there was something missing. And they realized in 1937 they discovered the neutron. And neutron just blew him away. For him, for him, it was just crazy. And if you think about it, if you know a little bit about chemistry, you know a little bit about electrons or atoms losing a charge here and there so that it can combine. I won't get into that, but just keep that in mind, you nerds. Okay, but it's, um, and they realize you need these three. You need these three for the atom to be complete. If you don't have this, and if there's something missing, this atom becomes unstable, explosive, or acidic, something not healthy. And it's the same way. In the body, if you don't have the three, it can become explosive, acidic, unhealthy. In church, if the three aren't united, it can be explosive, unhealthy, acidic. In the family, if you don't have the three, it can be explosive, unhealthy, acidic. You need the three, and the three is given to us by the creator of all of heavens and earth. He created all the world to kind of represent the fingerprints of his creation is in everything. The three even down to the smallest particle that we know of mass. Of course, now we find things are smaller, but back then. So that is why the Trinity is so important, but that is why even as Christians we see what is happening when Jesus comes down to this earth is so mind-boggling, mysterious, enigmatic, sure, but it's, it's crazy. Because Jesus would come down. Remember, he is perfectly united with the Father. He is one with the Father. He existed before time with the Father. He lived with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He always lived with them, looking at him face to face. But then he 
took on the sin of man. And when he took on the sin of man, he took on the wrath of God. And when he was crucified on that cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was ripped from the Father. This perfect union, this amazing trinity that we see all of beauty in creation around us because of it was ripped and he did it because he says he loves us and he wants us to unite back with him. He was killed physically. He was deserted emotionally. And he suffered the most painful spiritual separation from the Father. But because he was physically killed, physical death has no more hold on us now. Because he was deserted emotionally, we can become whole again, renewed in the image of God. And because he suffered spiritual separation, we are now spiritually united to him through faith so that we can never, ever again be separated from the love of God. Because he was forsaken, we are forgiven. That's why he says to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. You know, there is black and white between lifter of my head in the passage. Lifter of my head means God is the judge. And when God lifts your head, you're either going to be damned or you're either going to be restored. But all of us have fallen away. And all of us would have been lifted up in a way where our heads would have been removed. There is nobody perfect and nobody, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So all of us would have fallen short, and yet because of what Jesus did for us, now when we say he is the lifter of our head, it means through Jesus we shall be restored. Isn't there a dream in your heart This is what I should be. This is not right right now, but I really want to be this. Who interprets that dream and who is sovereign over that dream? Who makes it happen? And so when God lifts you up, then you could actually say what the psalmist said in chapter 33. He said, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. It means that God will restore him. That's his faith. My friends, when we talk about Jesus, we're not just talking about some man who walked on this earth. He has some good teachings, good wisdom. I like that three thing that you mentioned. That was really good. I like how it applies. No, this is life and death, my friends. And when we say we believe in the name of Jesus, we believe that Jesus is the lifter of my head. We are saying through my faith in Jesus, when I get lifted up, I will be restored because of what he has done, not because of what I have done. Who are we in this picture? Can we honestly say 
that we are the cupbearer. If I were honest with myself, I would say I'm more like the baker. I love separating things. I love it. Benediction. Boom. Done. You walk out those doors and the first thing you talk about isn't God, isn't the sermon, isn't the worship. What are we going to eat? What are we going to do? How are we going to spend the rest of our free Sunday now that worship is over? That's what I'm inclined to do if I'm honest with you. We love to separate and have different baskets on our head, right? This is my church mode now. Church mode, let's listen to the sermon. Church mode. And once you're out, like, church is over there. Now I'm in my other mode. Now I'm in my ferocious basketball mode. Now I'm going to destroy whoever's on the other team. And then once that's done, I'm in another mode. It's like, now I'm in my, oh, my sad mode because tomorrow's Monday. So I need to just be sad that tomorrow's Monday I need to work. And then we're all in these different modes and we wonder why we're not healthy. We wonder why people are like, hmm, I wonder if he's a Christian. How dare you? That kind of thing. I'm a Christian. Just look at my other basket back there. And we wonder why. If I were honest with myself, I would say I'm more like the baker. There is no way that I'm inclined to be like the cupper. But that is why we need Jesus. That is why we put our faith and our hope in him. Our faith and our hope is saying, I can't be like that. In fact, I'm inclined to sin. I'm inclined to compartmentalize everything in my life because I think that's healthy, but I end up even becoming more and more unhealthy. So I need to call out to Jesus, save me, help me. This is what Lent is about. It's about turning back and living a life of repentance, saying, I can't continue to be unhealthy. I need to be healthy again in all the ways that you've meant me to be healthy. So that's why we say, I have faith in Jesus. In Jesus, I am healed. In Jesus, I have hope. In Jesus, I have life. Let's pray.